Hello and welcome to the Samungos Podcast. This is episode 72 and today's topic is Trauma Resuscitation with Chris Colwell. Now we're about to play his wonderful talk and you can watch that video in its entirety in the usual place at www.continualist.com forward slash LP forward slash St. Mungo's. Now also worth mentioning we have a number of wonderful uh, masterclass courses on Continualist with leading international experts. We have an airway course with Rich Levitan. We have an emergency orthopedic course with Aaron Sayal and many more. Now you can take these on demand. They are CPD accredited and they are all fantastic. So Click on Browse Our Library on Continuous, click on Courses, and you'll find the full list there. But let's jump right into this episode. I hope you enjoy it. So, Chris, thank you very much for joining me on the St. Mungo's podcast. You're, you're a very busy man, and we're absolutely delighted that, that you could do this. We're going to play one of your wonderful talks um, that you provided for the Pocketbook of Emergency Medicine. Uh, and you very kindly have joined us uh, just to give your top five pearls of wisdom uh, for emergency clinicians. Now, before we get those from you, do you mind just for our listeners, just letting them know who you are and where you are in the world? Well, sure. Thank you for uh, for having me on. And uh, so my name is Chris Caldwell, and I am the chief of emergency medicine at the hospital that is uh, pictured behind me here, Zuckerberg, San Francisco General uh, uh, Hospital and Trauma Center. Uh, and it is the same San Francisco general that has been here in one form or another since the mid-1850s, but uh, is now uh, the newer, cleaner version, certainly, that uh, that we moved into in 2016. Uh, but I'm here in San Francisco um, in the United States and have been here for about seven years. Prior to that, I was in Denver, Colorado for almost 20 years uh, and work at San Francisco General, which is our safety net uh, urban level one trauma center uh, and the only trauma center for San Francisco. Fantastic. Well, look, as I said, we're going to play your talk, but do you mind uh, you, you've come here today just to give your top five pearls of wisdom for emergency clinicians, which I'm really looking forward to. So please, Chris, just just you can go ahead. Thank you very much. Certainly. And uh, I know you've given me a time limit because I could talk forever about uh, about many of these. But in thinking about and and obviously there are so many and you'll hear some of those, at least what I believe are are pearls. I'm not sure they're of wisdom necessarily, but pearls uh, uh, for, uh, for it, within emergency medicine. But a couple of things that just come to mind when you when you ask that question of uh, what are the first things that jump out? So one of them for me is uh, respect the elderly. And I say that not just because I am elderly. Um, but because as I've gone through my career, I have forever been impressed with the ability of the elderly to uh, to, to hide potential very serious illness in general. And this is an overgeneralization, but uh, pediatric patients and even young adults, even extending into uh, middle age adults, um, when they're when they're acutely very ill, they tend to show that. Um, whereas as we get older, uh, we find better ways to hide it, and it comes from a variety of different reasons, not the least of which is, uh, you know, our, our vital signs tend to change, our baseline vital signs tend to change over time, and we depend so much on vital signs that uh, to help us identify sick patients that sometimes we forget to sit back and say, what's abnormal for one person is not abnormal for another. And I am just over and over impressed with the ability of our elderly patients, as we get older in particular, to hide serious, even sometimes very acute illness. So always respect the elderly for so many variety uh, of reasons. Uh, that kind of transitions into the next uh, pearl or tip, so to speak, is that stability is not a number. 
And we oftentimes try to become as objective as we can to identify, okay, this is this is really concerning and this is not. And so as one example, a systolic blood pressure of 90 millimeters of mercury is typically identified as, okay, if it's above that, we're okay. And if it's below that, we're not. And yet that doesn't apply to the, actually the majority of the population, including particularly as we get older. And so I think it's really important that, yes, we pay attention to vital signs. They are vital, hence the name. But I think it's also really important to remember that stability is defined not by a number, but by the patient and your assessment of that patient. And so when you walk in and the numbers all look bad, but the patient is there talking to you and clearly tolerating those numbers quite well, it's a very different situation than one where maybe the numbers look much better, but I, but the patient does not. And, and that really is what we need to focus on in terms of stability. If we define, is this patient stable? Uh, it goes much far beyond a number. And that as that example, a blood pressure of 89 uh, millimeters of mercury systolic might actually be quite normal for some patients, even uh, even into adulthood, um, whereas that would be gross, whereas a blood pressure of, of 91 or even 110 or more might be grossly abnormal for somebody who sits with a blood pressure that's much, much higher than that. So remember that stability is not defined simply by a number. The other, uh, the next one would be, you know, the, the most obvious issue in front of you is not always the issue that we need to be most concerned about. So this typically is applies to trauma, but it actually can apply to other things as well. When, when you walk in the room and you certainly, I think there's a lot of value to that initial, that first five second assessment that you do of a patient. And sometimes it's going to be very obvious that something is wrong. And sometimes one of those things, what might be wrong. So you go in and there's uh, somebody's fallen, uh, fallen down or maybe perhaps uh, been assaulted and they've got a obvious deformity of their arm. And so that's going to be the obvious one that, that you kind of are drawn, uh, are drawn to. And we had a good example of this just a week ago where we had a, a young man that was shot in the arm and and was it was very painful and uh, we came in and were everybody kind of focused on that gunshot wound to the arm as we reminded ourselves that we need to do the overall assessment we found actually another wound separate wound to the back that turned out to be this patient's life threat and so although the gunshot wound to the arm was certainly something that we were going to need to deal with it was not the most concerning issue so it's not always the most obvious issue uh, in front of you that is the most concerning that we need to be uh, that we need to be concentrating on. And then um, uh, the, the fourth pearl I came up with was uh, uh, just to remember that we do well what we do often. And many times, particularly in emergency medicine, we're tempted to go in a whole lot of different directions as we try our best to serve our patients. And, and there are times when that involves uh, either procedures or other processes that we're going to end up doing very, very rarely. And I would just caution us to remember that um, as good as we might be at emergency care, um, we're not going to be good at things that we just don't do very often, and particularly those that we do very, very rarely, and even more so uh, uh, situations or procedures that uh, that really require doing them consistently in order to do them well. And I think it's important to acknowledge that if I've done one of a particular procedure in the last five years, I'm just not going to be uh, going to do that as well and shouldn't be expected to do that as well as perhaps somebody who does that on a much more regular basis. 
And I think we need to incorporate that sometimes in our decisions as we go forward. How can we best serve our patients? Let's let's concentrate on, on doing doing what we do often well and recognizing that that we do uh, what we do often well uh, and and are much better prepared to to concentrate on those procedures and I think serve our patients better when we concentrate on what we do often versus something that we might do extraordinarily rarely. I'm not saying we don't sometimes have to do that and sometimes need to be prepared for that, but recognize that we're not going to do as well something that we do not do very often. And then finally, I think as as kind of a summary of of a lot of what we're challenged with in emergency medicine is as as we really strive to serve our patients, we are often tempted to try to be everything to everybody. And we recognize that our patients come in with many needs, many of them medical, but sometimes that go well beyond medical. And we are often adding services into the emergency department or adding things uh, within our scope of practice, things that we do to try to serve our patients, recognizing they have a real need. But it also really strikes me that the more we try to become everything to everybody, the less of any real value we become to anybody. And I think we need to really keep that in mind as we decide what we're going to concentrate on. It kind of combines that we will do well what we do often, and um, we can't be everything to everybody. So we need to concentrate on what we can do well for our patients and and not try to get caught up in that, uh, with that, that strong temptation to be as much as we possibly can to everybody. Because I really do believe, back to that uh, that final tip, that uh, when we try to be everything to everybody, we become very little of any value to anybody. Those are fantastic pearls. Thank you very much. Well, look, we're going to jump into your talk now. Thank you. Hi, everybody. My name is Chris Caldwell, and I am the Chief of Emergency Medicine at San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center here in San Francisco, California. And we're going to talk today about trauma resuscitation and the pearls and pitfalls that we run into in our initial resuscitation of the trauma patient. So, you know, we've been following the ABCs for really decades. Um, and, and although it has seemed to be a reasonable approach, and a lot of people have taken that approach, it's talked to us by ATLS, and, and many of us learned it early on in our education for trauma management, there really has ne never been any data that has supported an, a classic or traditional ABC approach. And I would argue that as we've learned more about uh, response to resuscitation and, and how we have effectively resuscitated our trauma patients, that it, perhaps we should be looking at it more of a, of a CABC, um, an ACBA approach, maybe even more so, where we certainly look at some of the, uh, the immediate priorities of the airway, but recognizing that very rarely does the airway need to be immediately addressed, particularly in a definitive fashion, that massive external hemorrhage probably is going to be our priority the majority of the time, and that we maybe ought to think a little differently about how we are approaching our trauma patients, particularly in the early resuscitation. So, you know, there, there's certainly the critical airway compromise needs to be addressed right away. And this, I think, is better termed the dynamic airway, where a patient is experiencing hypoxia despite repositioning, despite the application of, of oxygen, and they are they clearly do not have an airway, or the airway is being compromised as we as we approach the patient. And the other is the evolving occlusion. So you might see this in situations of burns or penetrating trauma to the neck where there's an expanding hematoma, and that airway is really uh, 
is being is an evolving occlusion right there in front of us. So those two areas really probably do need to be addressed right away. But I would argue those are extremely rare and that outside of those situations that the airway beyond basic maneuvers, perhaps applying oxygen, really isn't the priority. And the worry is that when we have focused so much on the airway, we've gone down the road of definitive airway management before addressing some of the other things. And this can actually be harmful in our resuscitation of our trauma patients. So we're going to assess it. If there is a critical airway compromise, a dynamic airway, so to speak, we certainly will address that. But then once we've identified that that is not the case, which is going to be the majority of our trauma patients, then hemodynamic optimization really is going to be the goal. And certainly before we intubate or definitively manage an airway, we're going to want to be sure that we have done everything to maximize our hemodynamics um, and, and really our hemodynamic resuscitation in order to, to really benefit our patients and to prepare them for definitive airway management if, in fact, it is necessary. And so circulation is going to really take the priority in most of our resuscitations. And as we, as we address massive external hemorrhage, I really, as we think about the ladder of hemorrhage control for us in the early resuscitation of the trauma patient, it's really focused on direct pressure and tourniquets. And those are, those are going to be our primary forms of addressing massive external hemorrhage, which is the other immediate priority. There's a dynamic airway, and then there's massive external hemorrhage that really need to take the first priority in our resuscitation. And lots of really good data. I could review that and spend many, many slides showing the, uh, the data that has really shown the benefits of early tourniquet use. And if when direct pressure is not doing the job, is not going to be effective enough, then moving to tourniquets where applicable, which is many of the extremity wounds that we might face uh, as early as possible is really going to be the goal. And we apply the tourniquet directly to the skin, close as close to the wound as possible, but really focusing on early tourniquet use when faced with massive external hemorrhage. So those are going to be our two immediate priorities, recognizing that in a lot of our trauma patients, neither one of those will be in play. But we're going to certainly look for that, the sort of the AC immediates, and then look at what our next really priorities are going to need to be and focusing still on that circulation and that hemodynamic optimization because intubation comes with some risks and we want to certainly mitigate those as best as we can when we have the opportunity to do it, which outside of that dynamic airway, we do. So intubation is going to increase interthoracic pressure and therefore decrease right atrial pressure in a situation where our patient is facing hemorrhagic shock, the low venous return is going to decrease even further with that positive pressure ventilation that we that we are going to accomplish with intubation. And in fact, pre-intubation hypotension or even shock prior to hypotension developing is a significant risk factor for post-intubation cardiac arrest. And we've all seen that where the quasi-stable patient and we induce them and intubate them and then they crash and crash very quickly. And there's some reasons for that some of which we can mitigate prior to that intubation if we focus a little bit on some of those other priorities. So we learned in ATLS that if a GCS of less than eight, intubate. However, I would argue that that's not an absolute. And in fact, what we really are asking is, is that GCS of less than eight related to trauma and a traumatic injury. And there are certainly a number of different things that can impact our trauma patients that aren't necessarily a traumatic injury that might cause that GCS of eight perhaps intoxication, perhaps some other things. And certainly we don't want to intubate if it's not a traumatic injury and that GCS perhaps is evolving and an immediate GCS of eight 
might evolve to a, a GCS of 10, 12, or 15. I had a number of patients just over this last weekend where that happened even over a matter of minutes. So it's not a single measure of time, but it's really assessing that patient and determining, do we think that GCS of less than eight is related to a traumatic injury? And then perhaps we're going to go down that route of intubation. Uh, certainly maybe other reasons as well, but often not as the next immediate step and focusing on that hemodynamic optimization first. And then if our patient is experiencing attention to pneumothorax or pericardial tamponade, uh, where certainly it might impact either their respiratory status or their GCS, but recognizing certainly that intubating that patient prior to addressing the pericardial tamponade or the pneumothorax is not only not going to be helpful, it's actually going to be harmful. And recognizing there are situations where rushing right to that definitive airway management will be harmful for our patient. And so outside of that dynamic airway compromise, we really are going to focus on other aspects of our resuscitation. And so what about that breathing? And I just want to address that um, for a moment here where when we do come up with a situation of a pneumothorax, and if that pneumothorax is going to require a chest tube, I'm going to make an argument right now, and I think it's based on very good data, uh, that nobody needs a big chest tube. When I trained, I was taught that if you're going to do it, go big, uh, maybe even a 40 French chest tube. And unfortunately, I will say that early on in my uh, in my career, I did put 40 French chest tubes in some of our trauma patients and look back now and wonder really if that was the best thing. I think you can make an argument that, that really, if you need a chest tube, that the biggest chest tube you're going to need is a, a 32 French and perhaps even smaller than that. And there's lots of good evidence coming out that even pigtails, when they're necessary, when a chest tube or a thoracostomy is necessary, uh, the pigtails are going to do the trick in, in almost all situations, certainly with uh, pneumothoraces and in even some cases with hemothoraces as well. I also want to make the argument that once the patient is in the emergency department, that a needle decompression really is not an efficient use of our time, that, that once you've made the decision that we're going to do a thoracostomy, and by the time we're thinking about a needle decompression, we really are going to be doing that, that a finger thoracostomy is, is almost as quick, essentially as quick in most cases, and a far more definitive management of that tension pneumothorax. And it also is going to be the next step towards putting in a chest tube when that is necessary. So I would say that by the time that for the field, it absolutely may be appropriate. By the time they reach the emergency department, that we maybe should be thinking not of needle decompressions in any of these situations, but going straight to a finger thoracostomy when that is warranted. Now, I want to talk about some of the circulation pitfalls. Now that we've really established we're going to concentrate in most of our trauma patients on, on the circulation aspect of the resuscitation, that here's some of the pitfalls that we will run into. So there, there certainly is a risk for over-reliance on a single set of normal vital signs. And we really have to be recognized that normal vital signs do not in any way rule out a significant injury, and even more so with our geriatric patients. And we'll talk about this more in a separate talk on geriatric trauma, but it's really hard for them to express what we think of as normal vital signs, uh, or excuse me, abnormal vital signs, just because they start at a very different place. And if you start with a very high blood pressure, then getting down to that systolic blood pressure of 90, that sometimes is uh, is used as the uh, threshold to consider hypotension. Well, if you start at, at 180 systolic, it's gonna be very, very difficult to get down to 90 until you're really at the very end stages of that uh, hemorrhagic stock state. Uh, and similar with pulses, there's lots of medications or other issues that might be at play with our geriatric patients that make it difficult for them to express a tachycardia. So 
really relying, over-reliance on vital signs, particularly when they're normal, can be a pitfall that we fall into in our resuscitation. And perhaps trends are probably going to be more important and follow that pulse. And maybe it starts at 70, which doesn't get anybody's attention, but then the next set is 78 and the next set is 82 and the next one is uh, as a pulse of 86. And they're clearly going in a direction that could be very concerning, even though technically they still have normal vital signs. The other area uh, is, again, recognizing that while a normal set of vital signs should not reassure us, particularly early on in the resuscitation, that even a single abnormal vital sign should catch our attention. And we have some good data over the years here that shows a single low blood pressure, even in the pre-hospital setting, uh, and certainly in the emergency department, is a risk of significant illness and, and increases the likelihood for the need for the operating room and increases the likelihood for morbidity and mortality in this patient in these patients. And so even one abnormal set of vital signs should catch our attention. And it's another kind of reminder for all of us to please pay attention to those pre-hospital vital signs. Sometimes by the time the patient arrives in our emergency department, they have quote unquote normalized for any variety of reasons. But that one abnormal blood pressure in the field is a significant risk factor for bad illness. And we should be certainly paying attention to that. Now, while we're doing our resuscitation and recognizing that circulation will take our priority in most of these cases, I also wanna say as we get into disability and exposure, the C-collar is something that really can become problematic on a variety of different levels. And let's talk about the C-collar for a second because the, uh, the, the benefits of the C-collar has really never been based on good data. And in fact, it may be harmful. And we've got some data over the years that shows in some cases it is harmful. So routine use should be avoided. And in fact, we don't need a C-collar in any situations of penetrating trauma. And I would argue that there are some situations where even in blood trauma, we need to weigh the risks and benefits of a cervical collar. So it increases intracranial pressure. It reduces venous return. It can complicate airway management. And remember, again, that there's no evidence that they limit the mobility of the spine uh, and, and, and truly benefit our patients. So although I would love to say get rid of the C-collar entirely, and I think we can say that for penetrating trauma, gunshot wound stabbings, um, I'm, I'm not don't have the data yet to back up a statement where I could get rid of it entirely for all trauma patients. But I just think it's important as we are resuscitating our trauma patients to weigh those risks and benefits and recognizing that the benefits of the C-collar may be limited and that the risks certainly are there, in, at least in some cases, that there will be times when I will either remove the C-collar entirely or use it in a, uh, in, a, in a particular focused pattern while I'm resuscitating the patients to minimize those risks that come with it and recognizing that the benefits could be limited. So I do, as we are, are moving into the next stage of our resuscitation, uh, want to acknowledge the benefit of uh, the focused abdominal ultrasound um, and, and certainly the EFAST where we, and this is the POCUS or point of care ultrasound. Uh, there's so much information early on in the resuscitation of our trauma patients that this gives us. Uh, certainly, it tells us about intra-abdominal hemorrhage or, more importantly, intra-abdominal fluid. We don't know that it's hemorrhage yet, but in a trauma patient, we're certainly going to suspect that. Uh, it will tell us about a pneumothorax, perhaps even better so than a chest x-ray, pericardial tamponade, and even your uh, inferior vena cava assessment. And when you see that and you see it's flat, 
we can we can probably assume shock until proven otherwise, and that hemorrhagic shock in our trauma patients is certainly going to be our first assumption. Uh, like repeat EKGs, uh, repeat EFAS are your friend and a, a, a benefit in our trauma patients. Now, again, we need to recognize, as with any intervention, what the uh, what the strengths and weaknesses of that intervention are. So, for that point of care ultrasound in a trauma patient, positive almost certainly helps. Normal less so. We do need to understand the limitations of ultrasound and recognize that even a severely injured trauma patient may have a normal ultrasound. But we know that if the patient is unstable and the ultrasound is positive, that if available, the operating room is, should be your next priority um, or transfer of that patient if the operate, operating room is not available. And if it's positive and stable, then that next step may be CT or getting ready to transfer also if that is appropriate. There is some debate certainly on the value of the point of care ultrasound in trauma patients that are stable, but recognize also that traumatic injury can evolve over time and in many cases does evolve over time. So an initial normal ultrasound that later on in the resuscitation turns abnormal is extremely helpful. And there are some situations even in stable patients where I will use the ultrasound and find it extraordinarily valuable. There is more data coming out on this, and perhaps it's going to help us focus a little more on exactly what patients it's going to be beneficial on. I don't think there's any question that for unstable patients, it's beneficial. And I would argue that there are certainly some situations where it is beneficial in the stable patient as well. And then adding to that EFAST, where the diagnostic accuracy of that um, has really been established well. This is a study that found the EFAST is very effective at ruling in intra-abdominal free fluid, pneumothorax, and pericardial fluid. So it's sensitive for, or I'm sorry, specific for ruling those issues in, and it's sensitive for pericardial fluid. In other words, ruling out pericardial fluid. So it's very effective in those areas. Here's another uh, study that also showed it can be very effective in detection of a pneumothorax, and in fact, is better than a supine chest x-ray in detecting a pneumothorax in our trauma patients. So as we're moving on from the ACBAs that we're uh, now focusing on in our resuscitation, a reminder that as our disability and exposure assessment comes into play, that it's not always that most obvious injury that is the most dangerous to our patient. And so please remember that as we do our that initial assessment and in many cases identify obvious traumatic injuries when they exist, that we are going to go through that disability and exposure aspect of our resuscitation specifically because we know that the most obvious injury, the injury that might be very clear to us on arrival of the patient may not be the most dangerous one. And this is most classically found in penetrating trauma where a, a stabbing or a gunshot wound might be very obvious on arrival, and yet it's the one that is less obvious that might be the one that requires our attention the most. So as we are going into that next step of resuscitation, we know we're going to go early into the use of blood products if we have those available. There's been some debate on whether it should be one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one of packed red blood cells, plasma, and, uh, and platelets. Uh, others have gone one to one to two with two units of packed red blood cells, uh, although most centers in the United States, at least, are using one to one to one ratios. Uh, there certainly could be some uh, benefit to one to one to two, but a balanced resuscitation, what we call hemost hemostatic resuscitation, is clearly better than going in uh, very heavy on, say, packed red blood cells and not adding platelets, plasma, and maybe even fibrinogen as well 
into that resuscitation. But one question we need to ask is, should we be using any crystalloid, any of that normal saline lactating ringers or crystalloid that we might be using? And in addressing the triad of death, metabolic acidosis, the hypothermia, the coagulopathy, the crystalloids make all of these worse. And so when we, when we look at what crystalloids can do and the demonstrating, demonstrated harm that they have, dilutional coagulopathy, anemia, extravasation, interference um, with the endothelium, many areas where crystalloids really can cause harm, I think we have to ask, do we need any crystalloids? And certainly focus on minimizing crystalloids in our resuscitation. I don't have the data to say we should go to zero, but I do think we should probably limit it to one, one unit of crystalloids if we're going to go at all and very quickly move to blood, blood products when we have those available. And one of the things that may allow us to do this is, is knowing that permissive hypotension or probably better termed controlled resuscitation, we're a lower than what we normally think of as a, well, as what we think of as a normal blood pressure might be the way to go early on in our resuscitation, particularly with penetrating trauma and without head injury. And we know that with this controlled resuscitation, we've seen some studies that have shown lower mortality, less likelihood of developing multi-organ dysfunction or ARDS. And this gets us uh, to when thinking about, do we need more crystalloids um, or, or how aggressively do we resuscitate even with blood products? That, that recognizing that particularly without head injury, that lower blood pressures than perhaps some of us have been comfortable with are probably the goal. Now we need to balance this with if we are preparing to intubate and use induction agents, we certainly need to balance that recognizing that those lower blood pressures can present a risk. But in our resuscitation, and because we have recognized we're not going to definitively manage the airway early on if we don't have to, that this permissive hypertension or controlled resuscitation is, is really probably our best focus going forward um, until we have to make that definitive airway decision. And then we're going to need to balance that with the, uh, the, the pre-intubation resuscitation. So the controlled resuscitation... I will acknowledge that human data is limited, but there is no proven improvement or no proven improvement in survival based on this on human data. But we have known harm from our traditional resuscitation, particularly with crystalloids and particularly with going with maximal blood pressures early on. And the current guidelines that, that are in place are recommending this controlled resuscitation. And so once again, outside of head injury, it really does uh, warrant our consideration to consider controlled resuscitation early on in our trauma patients. Now, when it comes to labs, I will say that there are no labs that are, are really have been proven to be a benefit in these cases. Uh, base deficit probably does, particularly early on when it's greater than six, can predict significant injury. Um, and lactate that has been used sometimes um, as, uh, as, a, uh, as a measure of that base deficit, an increased level as a reasonable predictor of injury severity, at least in some studies, uh, but recognize that the coagulation studies, particularly when we get uh, CBC looking for platelets um, or protimes, uh, prothrombin times, uh, INRs, all of those things are really not good measures of the coagulation that our patient is facing, the coagulopathy potentially that our patient is facing now, and knowing that perhaps only as a baseline will those provide any value. And then when we go to massive transfusion, we talked about one-to-one-to-one -one -one versus one-to-one-to-two. And Either one is probably appropriate. Again, most centers here in the United States are going for one-to-one-to-one, -to -one -to -one, but recognize we can get behind very quickly, particularly in places like uh, in trauma centers where our first blood that we get is many times packed by blood cells. And we need to really be cognizant of adding 
the other additional uh, fibrinogen, plasma, platelets to these transfusions early on in our resuscitation. And this brings up the issue of whole blood. There's a lot of places across the world and some pretty good data coming out that whole blood might be that answer. It's where we started and maybe where we need to go to. Uh, we don't have definitive data showing benefits in whole blood. And a lot of the data that we do have comes out of some of the military studies. But there's more and more in civilians as well. And I want you to keep your eye out for this. For those of us that have access to whole blood, a lot of centers are starting to use that. And certainly that is a good option to help keep that balanced resuscitation, that balanced ratio, particularly as we go into massive transfusions. So uh, transistamic acid, TXA, I just want to make a quick comment on this because this comes up a lot in trauma patients. And I would just say that there are some data that has come out recently that suggests that in situations of severe head injury, we need to be careful with TXA. And so do keep that in mind. The current data supports, particularly in patients that don't have head injury, and if you don't have access to um, uh, uh, elastic studies, ways of assessing profiles, coagulation profiles right there, which many of us do not, uh, the literature does support a one gram loading dose and one gram infusions over eight hours in trauma patients if given within a three hour window. As long as there is no evidence of severe head injury and you don't have access to the viscoelastic assays that can sometimes tell us the specific coagulation profile of our patients. So this really is where we are right now with TXA, more to come, um, but in the early resuscitation of our trauma patients, this is something to be considered because we really do recognize and know that there's a trauma-induced coagulopathy that is far more common than we gave it credit for early on in our resuscitation. And maybe the leading cause of mortality after resuscitation, it's why our attention to this resuscitation and controlled resuscitation, um, particularly early on and delaying intubation until we, we it's absolutely necessary or we have resuscitated our patients first is really a key factor because our resuscitation process can lead to greater incidence of trauma-induced coagulopathy and greater mortality. And it doesn't look the same in, any, in, in every patient. It's going to be dependent on a number of factors. So we do need to consider this in our resuscitation, which is why that early resuscitation approach is so important. And again, remembering that the standard coagulation studies that we are using are not adequate. So not all blood com uh, components are depleted equally in hemorrhage. And so early fibrinogen um, is probably something to consider as well. And remember the platelets, um, some more recent studies have really reminded us that, that platelet therapy is so important as we are doing these resuscitations, particularly in our massive transfusion situations. Um, one quick comment on Reboa, uh, the resuscitative endovascular balloon uh, occlusion of the aorta, which is being used in a lot of places across the world. Um, I really think there's, uh, there's still data coming out but I, I, I'm not sure that we have found the clear role of this outside of potentially pelvic fractures. And, and we really have seen some recent data that shows that particularly if you don't have immediate access to the operating room for the bad hemorrhaging pelvic fractures, that Reboa may be a viable option. It's certainly something that can be placed in the emergency department, placed in zone three, so below the renal vessels. Um, and in a hemodynamically unstable pelvic trauma patient where we believe the pelvic trauma is, is leading to that hemodynamic instability, Reboa may play a significant role. And I want to finish up with just a comment on these induction agents. When we do make that decision to intubate, a lot of the induction agents can have a significant impact on the hemodynamic status of our patients. And so think carefully, automate propofol, 
ketamine, which is very safe in trauma, have traditionally been used, as well as fentanyl and Versed, but recognize that these induction agents can have a negative impact on our patient's resuscitative status and hemodynamic status. And the introduction of that positive pressure ventilation decreases venous return, decreases preload and cardiac output, as we talked about, and the induction agents can reduce that venous return even further and reduce the sympathetic tone that sometimes may be maintaining our patient's hemodynamic status. And so particularly with things like benzodiazepines and propofol, in that patient in hemorrhagic shock, they can be complicating our resuscitation efforts. In order to optimize our hemodynamics, both the use of and dose of atominate have been associated with hypotension um, and not so much with the paralytics. And so when we are resuscitating our and, and now inducing and intubating our hemodynamic shock patients, we really want to go higher on the paralytics and be careful of that induction agent, particularly if we don't use ketamine. And remember, ketamine is very safe and very effective in our trauma patients. Um, but either succinylcholine nor rocuronium, our typical uh, paralytics that we have used in trauma patients, uh, have the same impact on blood pressure as some of our induction agents. So when you decide to paralyze, paralyze and go higher on the paralytics, a little lower on the induction agents. And then I want to finally uh, finish up with, as we pay a lot of attention to resuscitating our trauma patients, one of the areas to really focus in on is our team dynamics. This was, an, I think, an exciting study that came out in 2018 that talked about the human factor and optimizing trauma team performance in dynamic clinical environments and how human factors really count in that resuscitation room, how we're interacting with, with each other, how we're communicating, and that reviews of human factors on optimizing team performance have really focused on both our individual preparation for that resuscitation room interaction and the environmental optimization. So how are we best communicating? How are we best coordinating? This is something that we should be focusing on as well. And as we learn more about resuscitating our trauma patients, focusing on these factors, team dynamics, human factors, and how we can be better. Maybe we should be, the idea of managing ourselves, our teams, and our environment is one of the best ways we can optimize and improve our care of our resuscitation and our resuscitation of our trauma patients. So in summary, I would say that it's probably more ACBAs rather than the ABCs. Identify shock early and certainly intervene. Pay attention to trends and vital signs. Don't be uh, reassured by normal vital signs in our sick trauma patients. Avoid pre-intubation hypotension and resuscitate before you intubate in all situations that you can. Relieve obstructions like pericardial tamponade or, or uh, pneumothorax before you intubate. And it may even actually allevi alleviate the need for intubation in some cases. Respect the well-appearing geriatric trauma patient. Go higher on paralytics, lower on induction agents and shock. Our goal-directed resuscitation and sometimes recognizing that controlled resuscitation would be the approach. Stay with high ratios and recognize that when we're using blood products, we can get behind in that balanced resuscitation very easily and very early. TXA is probably a, an important part of our early resuscitation as we sit here today, as long as there's no significant head injury. And if hyperfibrinolysis by VDA, uh, by vis vis viscoelastic assay is available, certainly that can direct us towards TXA as well. And there's growing support for those viscoelastic assays when they are available. Ketamine is safe in our trauma patients and be mindful of the impact of induction agents. Thank you for your attention on this important issue. And, and I truly appreciate the focus that we are taking on the resuscitation of our trauma patients. 
Brilliant. Well, look, thank you very much, Chris, for that wonderful, wonderful talk. And um, before we let you go, we always finish these episodes with the same question. We ask all our guests, if you don't mind. Um, so I take you back on my time machine to meet your junior self just starting their career. Now, you've obviously gained a lot of experience uh, in your career since then and in life since then. So what one piece of advice would you give your junior self if you could speak to them today? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's so many different uh, things that I've thought about in answer to this question. But I think probably the the one thing I would say if if I only had one piece of advice to give was have a plan for your career uh, and have, you know, have that plan be an extended three, a five, and even a 10-year plan. But don't get so locked into that plan that you lose sight of some of the things going on in the periphery that might actually have more impact, positive impact on your career than you can imagine right now. And I say that as somebody who has seen my career go in a number of different directions, and I've had a chance to talk to a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds who have also seen their career go in different directions. And almost inevitably, when you ask them, uh, they will say, if you, if you had talked to me 10 years ago, I never would have imagined that I would be where I am now, and yet, in most of the cases, they'll say I wouldn't wouldn't change a thing, and I'm really excited that I took some of that path less traveled, so to speak, or path not necessarily planned for. And so it is very important to have an idea of what you want to do over the next three to five years and even ten years, but be careful about getting too locked into that, and and always keep your eyes out for those things that you might not have anticipated. Um, and and might in some cases be surprises, but can also have positive impacts on your career uh, that, that you'll look back and say, those may be some of the most significant steps that you took. So keep your eye out for those as you go down that, uh, that plan and vision that you have for your career. More fantastic advice. Well, look, Chris, you're an extremely busy person. I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you very, very much. Well, thanks for having me. Good to see you. Uh, and yes, uh, look, look forward to, uh, to more episodes cut down the pipes. So many, many thanks again to Chris Colwell for the wonderful words of wisdom and that wonderful talk. Remember, you can watch it in its entirety at www.continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash St. Mungo's. And please feel free to share that link with your friends and colleagues if they would find this lecture useful. Also, don't forget there are amazing courses on Continuous uh, from some wonderful uh, educators, including Rich Levitan, Jim Ducanto, Aaron Seal, and many more. These are fantastic emergency medicine courses, CPD accredited, and you can take them in your own time. So check those out. Until next time, please take care. <laughs>